Hello, welcome to Lightning Forms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lambda Forms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today, I am joined by writer Ryo Miyayuchi, who runs the blog and newsletter This Side of Japan, where he reviews and catalogs the best in new Japanese music. Ryo and I first met when we wrote for the website Unrecorded in the mid-2010s. I've always been impressed with Ryo's voracious appetite for new music, as well as his prolific output as a writer. Those qualities have carried over to this side of Japan, and I was psyched to have Ryo on to talk about his workflow, his perspective on the Japanese music scene as someone living in the United States, and a grab bag of other topics related to his excellent newsletter. But before we get to the interview, I'd like to mention that I have an album coming out this week. It's called You Can't Do This Alone. It is an eight-track remix album that features collaborations with artists like Humesha, Fabio Brienza of the band Varaha, the producer Numina, Saint Thriller, and many more. It comes out on April 9th, but you can pre-order it now at lamnaforms.bandcamp.com. Now on to my conversation with Rio. Thank you for listening. So what have you been up to since Unrecorded? I feel like I've kind of lost track of you for a second there. I mean, just I just kept on writing really different places, you know, that's about it. Like, uh, it's always been like a side thing for me. So aside from that, just writing, really. How did you start writing about music to begin with? Like, what's your origin story? I think it was just like having Tumblr. And then like, I just wanted to write about music that I liked just to be like, hey, I like this. And it's just sort of grew from there, really. Like mm-hmm. I learned, I read more. So I wanted to write more like whatever I read and then just read like, more, more criticism so i want to do more criticism it's just like snowballed but i think tumblr is really where i started mm-hmm. and when you're talking about like reading other people and being inspired by that was that like bigger publications or other people that were just kind of doing it ad hoc on tumblr like what, what was kind of inspiring you to start yeah i think both but base um a big thing is like probably pitchfork reviews are pretty big that's when I first really realized that people do this as a thing. It's usually just like just conversation between friends. It's like, oh, you actually put that thoughts down on paper and then like articulate yourself pretty thoroughly. So us and then just doing it myself was kind of fun. What do you remember like that you were writing about when you were first getting started? Really just like like pretending to like be a blogger pretty much like <laughs> pretty much, you know, uh, imitating what I really read. So basically like making my own music blog. Uh, so just really like like two sentences on like, oh, this is this thing, new, this new thing came out or like uh, trying my hand at album reviews in a way that I read out Pitchfork or something, even though I probably only like two of my friends are reading it at best. <laughs> what kind of music were you covering at that point? That's funny because so it's like what, uh, I started this around like uh, maybe 2009, 2010-ish which is like me in high school, uh, senior year of high school. So basically whatever uh, indie music Pitchfork was covering, I remember, I think I tried blurring about like like a Deer Hunter album or something or um, Phoenix's Wolfgang Amidius Phoenix. 
like the Nationals, High Violet. So pretty mm-hmm. much like all the big best new music ones. Yeah, I, I'd sort of think of that as like the peak of pitchforks power and like the sort of like big indie moment was right around that like 2009 kind of stretch like you had like like Meriwether post pavilion and dirty projectors and all all, like deer hunter as you said all kind of blowing up so it makes sense that there would be kind of this like growing enthusiasm to write about that stuff outside of the the critical world as well i mean that's when i also kind of figured out or like that because i was listening to like you know like what's known as like blog house like a bunch of like loose mp3s and then those aren't really critically covered like i didn't really know at the time of like why but i knew there was some things missing mm-hmm. yeah, i wrote about that but i kind of leaned towards whatever the big stuff that was covered by like pitchfork or whatever maybe just to give us like a bit more context for your taste and your approach before we dive into the current newsletter what were your some of your earliest moments like falling in love with music and what what were some of your like the most like sort of foundational artists or songs that you really got into that kind of like nurtured your love for music i think a big thing is like rap music i mean i like rap music since like uh like the first like pop music i guess you can say like the popular stuff like I grew up in the 2000s, so it really exploded then. So rap is really foundational for me and I still love it. Um, that's like the one genre that I feel like I love the most. And then I watched some documentaries on hip hop and like the whole culture. So I just pretty much got absorbed into that for a good while until friends introduced me to like rock music and whatever else. I think like just rap music is just really foundational for me. Did you have like a particular like lo- locale that you were interested in because at that point it was still like there was still very much like regional taste in hip-hop you grew up on the west coast right yeah it's like the same though where like you see texas blow up uh, and then later atlanta basically all the south blowing up i mean i did go through like you know uh i guess like real rap a real hip-hop phase where mm-hmm. like when soldier boy came out it's like a perfect time to really pick a side on that because that's what everyone else is doing. But I think just in general, locale was like, wherever was popular and whatever, like I would look up what blogs were covering at the time too, because mixtapes uh, was blowing up then. So, you know, something like what Kid Cudi would be born from, uh, like Big Sean, uh, I would pretty much, that was what I, me and my friends were really listening to. When did you start writing for other publications outside of your own tumblr uh it was really i think the first ever one was 2012 because i stopped do, writing about music for like a year i like, picked it back up in 2012 is weird like that same summer i like applied for this now this website doesn't exist anymore but it was like 365 albums a year where it's literally that a day, um, album an album a day for a year year long I uh, wrote for that, I wrote an album. It's basically like whatever you like. Uh, what if what if the editor says yes, then it's fine. Mm-hmm. After that, I kept writing on Tumblr, but that's probably the first time I like submitted, like, hey, uh, I'm interested in writing somewhere else. I just picked up sites from like pretty much friends. Uh, they wrote, they already wrote from a place that I'd like joined whatever they were doing. Do you, what's your kind of relationship with like writing for other publications versus doing your own thing and kind of owning your own lane and whatnot this is where i feel like i think i'm just like kind of maybe selfish in a way where like i can't write stuff that i i don't 100 percent want to feel like writing 
like when when I wrote for Unrecorded, it worked out because that's my tastes at the time were pretty like on point with usual uh, indie music covering, so that worked. But like later on, when I was wanted to write more about non-Western music or something like Latin pop music, K-pop music, there's not a lot of outlets for that. So I only wrote for stuff with other people if they like really invited me and be like, hey, can you write about you know stuff that I just named? Mm-hmm. Um, I would go here and there just because I that's not all I really listen to. Sometimes I want to get my opinions out there, but usually like the main reason I don't really part like never really tried it to go into bigger publications is because like I don't want to write about the main stuff they're covering most um, as like a main gig. Just out of curiosity, did you ever try your hand at making music or has your approach always been more as like a listener and a, a critic instead of a participant? Yeah, I am not good. <laughs> <laughs> I think I tried once or something, but no, I don't have that. Like, I'm like, I guess I consider myself a creative person, but like, I like thinking about things more than like, I'm not good at making stuff. <laughs> like, out of thin air, really. Mm-hmm. How do you think that? impacts the way that you write about music just the fact just like i mean like going against this like thinking like you have to make music to understand music you know like it's there's a whole different perspective that you can bring to the table even if you're not maybe creatively like inclined or something so and it never was like a never thought of it as like a barrier that would just something some other perspective i could give so you mentioned that after a while you started getting interested in writing about music outside of English language, Western sounding stuff. When did that moment start happening for you? I think the big turning point was really uh, before K-pop, that was a thing that like Spanish language music. And that was really a recommendation from an online friend listening to Javier Jimenez music, which she's from Chile. Mm-hmm. That really like interests me to like Mexican pop music because I, um, this website, Clef Phonograma, uh, just covered a bunch of Spanish language music. So I sort of like, wherever that was on the list, I want to listen to because it's nowhere else that was covering it. That was part of what I was like interested in. But at the same time, like I wouldn't be listening to all this stuff if I didn't have friends that would appreciate it as well, have conversations with. Mm-hmm. And like after that, I was like, I'm listening to stuff that's done in English already. Might as well take a stab at different languages. And that's were like went to Asian music pretty much. And were those like the friends that you're mentioning, are these people that you knew in your like IRL life or this like, or is this mostly like an internet community? All of them, all my music conversations basically happen online. Like mm-hmm. I listen, all the popular stuff, maybe when I meet up with friends, but I don't, I hardly ever talk about music with friends really. It's just, we listen to different stuff and like, I don't want to talk about some stuff that my friends are into uh, because it's bad music. It's just, I rather have a whole different interests uh, pool, you know? So yeah, it's all online, just people I met online. Yeah, I was thinking about how there's something really interesting going on with your newsletter. Like in your first issue, sort of the introduction, you mentioned how much of your approach is kind of shaped by experiencing the music primarily through the internet. And I feel like it's interesting that the internet has kind of opened up this like sort of cosmopolitan music fandom where you can be in any particular place in the world, but sort of like have access to an entire separate 
musical culture and context that is like mitigated through the internet. Less of a question, but more of just like an observation, I guess. Yeah, that's yeah, that's like exactly uh, what I try to get at. And then like the thing that happens from there is that like what I'm trying to sort of balance out is you don't if you don't live there, you don't know like the other half of the story. You know, you have this like imagination of what it could be because it's all like I, I don't blame people for doing this because they don't live there. They, all they can do is pretty much like imagine as objectively as possible wherever they pick up culturally. But that's still like not the perfect picture. And sometimes it's like, you know, how like people maybe only digest Japan through a city pop lens and that's not the most perfect way to look at it or something. So, mm -hmm. so when did you decide to start? this side of Japan, the newsletter? Um, the newsletter itself, it's just more like just another extension of me covering, you know, just writing music on as like a hobby. But that's what the name comes from, like this side of Japan, this side meaning like the internet side. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, like that's where I'm writing from because I don't live there. And then, um, but at the same time, it's just my way of painting the fullest picture possible. I mean, like, as I've grown, as I, like, wrote more and more, I felt more of a purpose for it, where it's, like, I'm maybe, like, one of, I don't know how, I'm, like, I can count, count only handful of people writing about Japanese music specifically, so if I could just be someone in someone's life, that'd be cool, and just, uh, you know, like, I think I, re I did a recent feature with how to write, or, like, writing about Asian music, how it's, like, really different from whatever else is popular in America, mm -hmm. and just, like, if I could provide examples to someone that's like starting out, that'd be cool. So you you started the publishing it in the beginning of 2020. Was it like in the works prior to that or did it kind of all come together pretty quickly? Like what was your uh, blueprint and process coming up with the the format and all that? Yeah, like I, I did like a monthly column on Medium called This Side Japan Already. Uh, it's mm -hmm. completely different though. It was uh, uh, 10 songs per month. Like it's just stuff I liked. But like over a month, you like hoard like hundreds of songs <laughs> and then 10 songs is not enough. That, so I had to like, you know, do uh, bi-weekly works great. I like writing reviews. So album review and then and I wanted to also just write about old music just as a way to educate myself and the fact, you know, it's all it's not always about the new. So I just thought. There was an idea I always had in my head about, uh, you know, how Stereo Guns number one, that whole whole idea, but for uh, Japan's Oricon weekly charts. Mm. I always wanted to do that as a project, so I thought I could integrate that into it. So that's what, how I have my three section. How much do you feel like you're, you said that it's partially like educational, like are you, do you find yourself like learning a lot and having the, what you're hearing kind of change how you're approaching the more modern stuff that you cover? Yeah, I think just in general of having a like a deeper awareness of what happened like culturally in the past. I hardly know the past um, in general, Japan or just anything else. I gravitate towards the news. So it's a good way to really force myself to do research, which is always fun. You know, you mentioned that you're covering a, a a ton of music like you you kind of have this like going from 10 tracks a month to you know more and more and more and more i've always been kind of blown away by like how much material you're able to write about and able to cover in in like all of your various projects that i've read of yours how do you stay on top of so much music like what's your process for like listening and keeping track of all of this i always joke that like when i go home it's just music listening it's like sleep music listening that's all i do at home 
Well, I did have like separate ones depending on the genre. That's how you can tell I've listened to maybe too much. Um, for my Japanese and Asian music, I have a YouTube uh, channel dedicated to like to fetch algorithms basically. Mm-hmm. Um, for Jap for Japanese music in particular, there's like a um, like a iTunes music store kind of called Ototoy. I browse that every other week so I can like because um, it's not much change week to weeks. Two weeks is a good span to like let it sort of like the let you know musicians release stuff and then just check all of it later and i check Bandcamp as well so i have these routines in place sort of to whenever to uh get music and what kind of music from like youtube i browse every day um i spend like an hour just clicking on recommended all and just saving them all and then i sort of organize them i don't know if you probably see it but every month i have like just like a playlist that ends up being like 300 songs long every mm-hmm. month that's just stuff I find. The exercise there is like sequencing it. So I like actually have some sort of touch on whatever else is put in there. So I'm not just like like placing in this void and not never touching it. So, oh yeah. So I had like these sort of organizing things that like maybe I accidentally sort of adopted that kind of like became really useful later on. I was going to ask about the, the playlist stuff. I'm glad you brought that up because you're a very dedicated playlist maker like going on your spotify account there's tons of different playlists for that are like chronologically organized or are sort sort of look like listening diaries are those mostly for your own sake to like stay organized on what you're trying to cover or do you also view them as like part of the product of the newsletter and your critical work in general so the monthly plays they're they're inspired by one of the single box singles jukebox writers which i also write for uh, brad shoop he does i don't know if you're familiar with it but he has this like a thousand plus songs long for dedicated to each year so it's like a full like 360 look at what happened that year it's very i recommend you check it out it's so it's like an encyclopedic like three-dimensional look at a particular year because he covers mm-hmm. every country too um, but I got inspired by that. I want to do my own in a sort of way, or like at least like pretty much collect a massive amount of songs and sort of sequence them, have some sort of like wild but actually well organized thought into it. So, and I was already like, um, ever since in high school, I like kept up with uh, like logging what I listened to. Partly, like as I grew up, I'm like, I listened to so much stuff, I didn't want any of this to be like kind of feel like it's disposable. I want to organize it in some way so it's just in, just a way for me to keep like save music and like be able to like recall it like oh i listened to this in march so i kind of want to see what i was into that's what the monthly playlists are for just like a personal way to organize um the diary ones was just like a just like a fun little exercise and like looking back at my last fm scrabbles be like haha like i was into this sort of music at that time and you see the earlier ones are kind of really trashy in taste because I wasn't, I didn't really know about music at the time. But that, that was just fun to do. I don't really make playlists for like geared towards specific people unless they ask me for it. Some people have asked me like, oh, what's, could you give me like, like a list of fit, like pop songs you were into the year? And I like gladly make it for them. But mostly it's just for me to like organize all this music that I find. You're also a, a very prolific writer. It seems like you're constantly coming out. <laughs> like for once I signed up for the newsletter, it's like, oh, wow. Just like coming into my inbox, like very, very frequently. And you write a lot for each letter too. Like it's not skimpy. 
what's your process like for getting started on a piece and getting out so much so much of the work that you put out yeah it makes me like kind of worry if it's too much but i feel like it's good but anyway i do it in parts doing this writing doing writing for a long time making like i can bust out a blurb in like an hour Mm -hmm. i don't want to say i don't want to say i'm like a fast writer but like now if i like something it'll come pretty quick i've been doing it a lot so it seems like kind of routine but it takes like a good two to three days to put everything together like um album reviews i kind of knock out a good three-fourths of it come back to it to finish the conclusion edit it all together uh the songs as much um as soon as i pick them all apart out i just kind of do them all and then the uh the oricon part i kind of do them ahead of time so i don't have to scramble to like put a big old paragraph at the end last minute Mm-hmm. And then the intro paragraph, that's always just like a thing to sort of, I was like, I don't want to give you the sections without me saying hello. So that's my way of saying hello. Those are just stuff that's in my head mostly. Sometimes like I kind of freak out because I have nothing interesting going in my head. So I might make up something. That's what that is. So like maybe it takes about like three days total. I don't know. Who do you see as your audience? Because you're writing about Japanese music, but you're doing it in English and it's kind of for an English reading audience. Do you see your audience as primarily uh, Westerners that may not have much context for Japanese music? Or are you writing for people who already sort of are interested and kind of know what you're getting at already? Yeah. Um. Before, like when I barely started, that's why I kind of, I tried to I kind of like wrote with someone that already is a little interested in mine, but like want to just keep up with more because they don't know really where to. I did a like a survey in January to see who actually were reading my stuff. And that was more or less it. People who already who actually not only listen to Japanese music, but actually like different culture, like music of different scenes and countries already. So they already had that interest in mind. And I don't think I'm I feel like you have to have that curiosity to really like read myself constantly, not like this random person that, you know, never been exposed to Japanese music. But um, at the same time, I don't, I try to like make it easy so you don't have to know too much. Mm-hmm. It's like a balance of like making it easy to get into, but at the same time, I'm not like spoon feeding you everything. Right. I, I was reading the the interview that you did on the newsletter about one of the issues of covering this area of music is that there's kind of this tendency for Western listeners to try and like analogize certain artists or try to compare the industry, like saying like, oh, this is like the Japanese Taylor Swift or what have you, you know, try to like ground it in their understanding of American pop music first. Uh, Do you feel like that leads to any kind of misconceptions or misunderstandings about the nature of the Japanese music scene in Westerners' minds? Yeah, um, well, partly, yeah, that, like, those sorts of descriptions, when it's, like, pretty shallow, it just starts, it's, like, the Japanese pop scene in general seems like the lesser version of, like, a derivative of American pop in general, which is not, you know, it's pretty kind of racist, honestly, to really look at it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, it's, it's, it's true that they look at American pop music as inspiration so it's like a thing to really balance out so it's not like wrong per se to like compare if that's what they're actually doing 
it's just a matter of how do you like now you got to deepen that context a little bit more than just shorthand. So what do you see as like some of the biggest misconceptions that an American audience might have about Japanese music? That like there's this uniquely Japanese sound. I mean, there is this unique Japanese sound, but I feel like people have a, people also think of it as wholly like made in this own vacuum almost where like it's not influenced by american music or western music or what have you mm -hmm. like like whatever that sounds exactly like the west of japan is still japanese music you know um there um it might be it might sound wholly derivative but that's actually a pop sound in japan so i think the misconception is that where like i feel like people have an idea that there's something like wholly original made with no influence from the outside when really it's just just like uh you know it's a two-way it goes two ways um it's looking at other countries as much as trying to make something unique for itself this is more of a broad question but do you uh what what do you think are the biggest differences if there are any between the sort of like music culture in america versus the music culture in japan as you see it i mean the big difference is that japanese people like are more likely to listen to um, acts outside of the country uh, mm -hmm. than American people. There's people out there in Japan who probably don't even listen to Japanese music on their own and just listen to just like American bands or English bands. It's like if you know, like the people you imagine you only listen only like Radiohead and that kind of like kind of like uh, my tastes are better than pop that sorts of. But I'm listening by all these listening to rock music. Like that whole entire taste, not just a Japanese version, but the entire lineup of Western bands, those Anglo bands, like there's a Japanese person out there that's that's all they're listening to because they mm -hmm. think it's better than not just pop, but Japanese pop too. That's why it's like kind of weird. Or I mean, I get, I get it, but it sucks that like Americans listen to any music outside of their country and like that it's wholly new for them. Like they don't understand that other countries are actually like listening to outside. Uh, countries outside their music as just normal pop. Totally. Yeah. I, I've had experiences like anytime I've met someone from outside of America, I've had to like check a lot of preconceptions that I've had about like what they may or may not have heard. Cause so, like sort of to our point earlier in the conversation, like everyone's online. It's not like American music is like some secret to that the rest of the world isn't aware of. So like, of course, someone on the other side of the planet would have heard Radiohead. Like, to assume that there aren't people outside of the sort of English speaking world that are listening to these bands, like to assume that those people don't exist is kind of ludicrous. Yeah. And it's also funny. Like I had a, there's an experience I never forget of when BTS was really getting big. And then uh, they use all like a lot, so many K-pop acts also use English in their lyrics as much as Korean. Mm -hmm. It's just a normal thing to do because, you know, like, English is a second language everywhere else. It's in street signs. People like Japan has borrowed like languages from Western stuff, you know, it, but like that, that's not like obvious to people here. They're so oblivious to what, how other cultures function. So there are people, they're like, why are they thinking English? It's like, it, that's just how pop works over there. That's how like normal conversation works over there you know yeah i feel like there is sort of an analog here like you'll hear spanish phrases show up in what would be considered english songs in america and that's because there's just more familiarity with the spanish language in the united states and 
again, it is this kind of like a lack of self-awareness about like, of course, other countries would have similar mixes of, of language and using different phrases from different places. Uh, I was actually going to ask about the K-pop thing too. I know it's not quite your critical purview for this newsletter, but I was wondering about your impressions about the, the way that for a, a minute, at least from my perspective, it seemed like J-pop was going to kind of break into the American pop market. You know, there was that moment where like perfume were touring the States and were in cars too. And then instead it seemed like K-pop kind of arrived at that level that I thought that J-pop was going to. Do you see some, like, what's your take on this sort of like ascendant arrival of, of like South Korean pop music and American culture? I think with, you know, that era of perfume that was also coincided with uh, Carrie Pammy Pammy breaking the internet and mm-hmm. then like baby metals. Well, baby metal was the re- most recent one, which, you know, I think it, that, that just the wide Japan didn't really like didn't blow it as much as, as, as they did and k-pop sort of took over as the face of like east asian pop music is because just the record labels i feel pretty much didn't really want to open their gates i mean they're still sort of closed in right now even with streaming like being like silly opening just the fact of like lack of access for like international fans while k-pop that's that's their main thing that's that's that, that's a, that's an import that they have you know like they want to be known at internationally as that so i think that's like the big difference between the two I think now though, with streaming being big, they were about to sort of like re like roll that camp campaign again, but you know, COVID happened, so that kind of stalled. Like you see Perfume and the Rashi on Spotify in New York, those sort of billboards. Like mm-hmm. that energy was sort of gonna be put into place if COVID didn't happen. Same thing with like Kenshi Yonezu or something. Like with like teaming up with Spotify and sort of um, rolling out like international campaign for like the really temple. Uh, pop artists here i think that's yeah but i think that's just a big difference of like approach in business right there's also the way that i feel like the k-pop has kind of leveraged internet fandom in a much more deliberate and memetic kind of way like the like stan luna campaign something like that comes to mind is like taking advantage of like internet culture to kind of blow artists up in America, which I, I haven't quite seen the same thing happen from Japanese artists. Yeah. The fans are like more than happy to be mo- like mobilized for their fans. You know, it's their fevers as much as K-pop can be. It's just, yeah, like the industry, like the labels they don't really care to like make that accessible for international people, which I hope they think they're, I think they've been starting to think, rethink their ways. Uh, the past few years with streaming being like bigger and bigger, but mm-hmm. they really like missed the boat when they really should have. Why do you think the Japanese music industry had that perspective on the international market? I think it mostly had to do with how physical market is still like a dominating force there, at least then, you know, because it's like the whole, like the biggest like thinking right now is, you know, AKB's like dominance over physical format through like so thank you tickets and stuff. And like, that's the only reason or the main reason why like I like the top slot in Oricon is don't dominating in like powers of 10 compared to the lower ranks is they have people who actually like buy CDs mm-hmm. though there. And the people who buy CDs are either like Johnny's Boyax or like AKB with, you know, it's people who can actually get people to buy stuff. But I think it's just 
their like focus on physical markets not wanting to let go of that while people were like switching slowly and slowly to other formats ultimately to dig- completely digital gotcha yeah that makes sense you mentioned earlier in the conversation about the way that your coverage of this music is shaped to some degree by the fact that you're living in America are there pros and cons of that approach like do you find that that grants you some maybe critical distance and maybe a fresh perspective and conversely are there things that like you wish that you maybe would be able to do better if you were kind of like on the like boots on the ground and were able to cover it more directly yeah um i definitely like if i lived there i would be able to um, be more of a pulse with what's like what's popular in pop i think because like that's not um, what i'm talking about is like stuff that comes out of like supermarkets and like people like the songs you hear in passing even if you don't want to mm-hmm. i feel like that kind of stuff that sort of phenomenon it's so hard to sort of translate into writing or like any as a sort sort of awareness of culture and that's what like i want to do as much as possible and if i don't actually like experience that myself i don't know what's those sorts of ambient level popularity i don't know if there's any sort of advantages of being really distant i think the other thing though maybe is like being tapped into like um the the internet that's people like me who are like listening to j-pop from a distance and seeing what their responses are to certain stuff so having that sort of critical like review of certain stuff versus like how it's received actually in the country itself. And I feel like that's an interesting perspective to sort of evaluate. You mentioned the user feedback or reader feedback article that you did and how in particular there are certain sort of blind spots that you have. Like it's kind of tough, the idea of like covering the musical world of an entire country i would imagine that there's stuff that you kind of don't necessarily have access to or haven't gotten around to yet what do you see as like your biggest critical blind spots that you want to adjust and cover more going forward the biggest ones because my main access is youtube or stuff that's available in digital marketplaces which is stuff like stuff stuff on bandcamp stuff that's uploaded on soundcloud stuff of that nature where it's like kind of resists be participating in those like popular marketplaces or access. So it's, so you can tell that I don't really, I'm not really in touch as much as like the electronic scene there, like the dance scenes, which like I have to check SoundCloud for that. And I don't, I'm not really like still, like I haven't followed it enough to really have that like much awareness to it. Like experimental music too. Like I have no idea what those circles are. Like thank God I have like some friends in Tone Glow that keeps up with experimental music. But that's like experimental music in general, just like a blind spot for me. So like as much as I want to cover, because I know Japan's like historically like famous for experimental music, I just I don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. And then the I'm, I think I'm trying to get a little better and better with the indie rock scene, which, you know, that's uploaded like more exclusively on Bandcamp. Those are really those are easier to find. And then those are stuff that I really like. Looking for electronic music on Bandcamp is really not great. Like. It's more a way more misses than actual finds because it's also like people would upload any beat they make and call it like a tape on Bandcamp. So it's kind of hard. <laughs> so you have to really weigh through a bunch of like amateur stuff. But like rock music, I think I, I feel I hit a lot of good stuff on Bandcamp. So I feel like I'm getting better at that. 
but just mm. stuff that's you know not available on youtube or like up on streaming pretty much that are, those are hard to find and that's the stuff that like like needs to really be covered so yeah i feel like that's another place where not having that kind of ambient popular like that sense of like what is ambiently popular is also tough because it you would be able to tell like what was hot on the dance floors if you were able to go into the dance floors themselves and then but without that kind of immediate access you're right like a place like Bandcamp or youtube is not really where electronic producers are necessarily uploading their material those those platforms are not necessarily built to highlight that kind of stuff in the same way i, I do notice that you've got like just sort of through knowing you on the internet you've got a pretty wide taste range in general like you know it's it's funny watching you kind of like show like the cds that you've bought in a week and it'll be like some japanese pop music and then like a converge record sitting right next to it is that something that you try to cultivate like a certain degree of like eclecticism and genre agnosticism uh in your taste i mean that's something i pride myself over but i don't think i really force myself to do that i just follow my own like curiosities you know and mm -hmm. uh see where it took me and then because for I mean for a while like metal like metal wasn't really a thing I always listened to and I had to like really try try it again I guess it's like something in me to like okay I'll try this again or with a bunch of stuff I mean there's stuff like jazz that's like still like I can't find the footing in um but that's like harder um because I know the time like I couldn't listen to like yeah, um, just when I mean, like Japanese music itself was something like that for me before. That's like really, there's always a time and everything. And then like once it clicks, I just sort of follow through. So I think it's just years and years and years of like listening to a bunch of different stuff. Have you ever thought about doing any sort of like deeper dives into the Japanese metal scene? I always want to. Like, I know that's one other thing that's like they're really famous for like hardcore, Japanese mm -hmm. hardcore. Like, I want to learn a lot more about it, Japanese punk uh like japanese noise um that sort of heavy music scene because i know that's what japan's really pop like known for too it's there's an interest in it i just like there's only so many like hours in the day like you know and then whatever is like immediate to me is like idol music and it's like that's what i like so um sure. i'm i definitely want to one of the things i've noticed though is that it seems like japanese pop music even beyond a, an example like baby metal is much more willing to kind of incorporate elements of heavy music into the pop music world uh, in a way that's like completely absent in the United States. I don't know what, exactly what the deal is with that in, in Europe. I know that Europe has like a much more thriving kind of commercial metal scene than America does, but that's something that I've always appreciated about Japanese pop music is like you, you will get some double bass every once in a while if you're not, you know, if you're not expecting it there's an idea that like patrick saint michelle the um great japanese writer he sort of threw out in there like japanese pop was is probably what's going to save like rock music in general for going pop because japan and japan's music seems like one of the few that rock is still a dominant like pop force like and then um you know rock bands are do really well there still and i feel like like more like openness of heavy like guitars and stuff a lot of that also is like anime being really popular too and those uh tie-up songs having that kind of sound being more accessible to people so they just, they just think it's pop and then like you know have a vocalist that sort of feels with that scene and i feel like it's, it's good pop music <laughs> like the biggest song last year lisa's garenge from demon slayer that's like 
you know that's like a power metal song people just like kids just like kids indulge in that thing and just pop but musically it's like you know power power metal yeah it seems like there's an interesting split in the sort of cultural associations with particular sounds that are different here than in other places like i think in america there was so much of like a kind of like the satanic panic kind of thing that happened that sort of painted the sound of heavy metal with like a really like a negative association culturally that i it seems like other places have less of a hang up about that at least from my perspective yeah i feel like for metal music or at least what's popular for japan it's like the other way of like uh like visual k mm-hmm. where there's the mania of that where it's not like religiously impressed like you know it's not satanic but i feel like it's it's also it's still cultish you know i feel like ex japan's like a big like they're super big but it's still like a big cult at, at the same time it still feels more like a subculture yeah i think so but it's weird. The subculture is popular enough to feel pop, but it's like, it still has that like underground subculture aura to it too, which gotcha. I guess it's a metal is still in general. Totally. Um, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, this sort of like Western lens looking at like city pop. And I was really curious about what you thought about like the kind of explosive, the explosion of interest from the sort of like very online american hipster in city pop like what do you make of that sudden interest i mean i any like an entryway to jap like japanese music or any entryway for like an american person to listen to non-american music is cool it's just i just my only thing is i i just hope that's not your only understanding of japan you know like people it happens it's a lot of like cultural cultural stuff like you only maybe only watch anime and have a specific image of japan or something i feel like city pop can be that or like yeah that's like the that's just my main thing yeah it's it's an interesting thing like definitely feels very like the fact that it is music that is not made in the present kind of adds this weird critical or like voyeuristic element to it that i think crops up sometimes in like this sort of like music hipster world of like look at this thing that happened somewhere else let me take that and like reuse it for my own purposes. Like it'll be now it's like a cool, it's, you know, it's the kind of person that would like talk about liking that kind of thing as a way to make themselves seem more worldly or cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's what city pop has become at least like the newer iterations where it's just like 90% vibe, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It's like, people kind of adopt the sound or like whatever, whatever hallmarks they want to use, which is like the glossy synths or like, like the slap bass and stuff where like, they don't really listen to the lyrical material, probably just slap on like the sound and then that's it. So I feel like just the uses in general too, are just kind of voyeuristic, which is like, I don't know what to think about it just yet, but I think it's just fine. Just, tracing that as an influence you know like mm-hmm. it's just a new like a new development of music and i'm always like curious to see where it goes from there like um a lot of the k-pop like the K- k-pop's kind of using that too a lot of like thai bands using it too so it's like whoa it's like it's traveling in places i don't think it would go mm-hmm. interesting yeah i also feel like there's kind of this thing happening of a lot of millennials sort of turning 30 and getting really into 
eighties or sort of like, like I'm, tomorrow I'm doing another podcast about like why Steely Dan have suddenly like blown up in popularity amongst like people our age. And I feel like there's something similar going on of people kind of like gravitating towards this like super smooth hi-fi production style that I think like explains some of why people are so attracted to the city pop sound in America right now. See, the th- the mania of like city pop also reminds me of, you know, Shibuya K from way back when, which it's like kind of the same thing. It's like retro, it's like the, the referencing the retro uh mm-hmm. city like shibuya k itself is very like a uh, 60s 70s influence like french pop and you know like beach boys stuff like that um and that was you know also like a critically acclaimed scene but that's like all they cut co- that's like all they covered in japan in the 90s but like what, what about the rest of the 90s you know like uh, <laughs> like i wish i hope like japan in the 80s is not just city pop for some people too um like i will like uh, yeah, like maybe they. I hope they listen to the actual pop that happened then. Maybe they dig into the experimental scene there. Initially, that's why I didn't like Shibuya K too much. Where like I thought it was fun, but I didn't think it was critically great as the others did. At the same time, like I loved the J-pop in the '90s. There's so much happening there. Like a lot of the dance pop stuff. They brought in a bunch of R, like R&B, just a bunch of cool ideas that, and then just like. It's like oh that's that's cool but shibuya k is better or whatever just concentrating on that I, I, it didn't like really fit with me also like um i guess city pop has people that are popular like really popular like you know, obviously tatsuro yamashita is like a superstar everyone knows him but like there's sometimes like a distance of like people that that like a regular person knows in japan versus like the heroes in the critical sphere some, mm. some people are like who, who is that you know? right like I, I remember i read some in that same interview that you did talking about the way that like outside of japan people will kind of hype up artists that aren't necessarily very popular in japan itself so yeah. it, it's an interesting like the way that you framed it i thought was very astute like that there's this kind of like idea of trying to hype up underground music wherever it is or like less heralded music wherever it is but without understanding the popular music that it is positioned against in some way you're losing a lot of the context for what makes that underground music interesting yeah i mean that's like i had the experience with american music because i had Mm. to like read to like learn what I had to learn 90s pop myself. Like, I don't have parents that listen to, like, old music of America, you know? I had to, like, dig up stuff. So it's, like, there's this one very specific memory of me learning uh, about Asne O'Connor's SNL thing where, like, she writes the picture. Like, I thought, like, I didn't know that was people that, like, everyone, it's, like, a controversy everyone knew about. That was so old that, like, people in my generation didn't really care about it. And then, like, I told a friend about that, like, oh, look at this crazy thing I found. They're, like, really? You're barely learning about that now? (laughs) So it's, like, I don't know. It's, it's it's like, humbling. It's, like, there's stuff that's, like, super popular and then, like, you don't know about it. It's, like, vice versa, where, like, people, you think it's so good and like bring it to the home country it's like who is that yeah i remember you tweeting once a long time ago about like how the particular circumstances of like you listening to american music means that you don't have like this kind of like dad rock canon that like 
Americans do of like the Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, all the kind of like rockist celebrated shit is just like was not on your radar growing up. And I, I've always thought that's added like a really interesting, I, like, I don't think it's wrong to not know about that. So like, like, how could I like demand that everyone know every record that came out before 1990? Like, that's absurd, you know? But I've always thought that that lent your writing like a really cool kind of like fresh perspective that's less weighed down by history in some way. I'm glad you think that way, because I feel like I have to like pretend I know everything from from the past and time just to like pop up the fact that I'm a good critic. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, do you, how do you feel about that kind of, like, do you see it as like a pros and cons kind of thing? Or, or is it, it seems like you've got like some degree of like self-consciousness about it. Yeah, um, I feel like it's, I don't know, uh, I'm not like, you know, like totally going against the canon you know whatever like i did my homework for some of it at least but Mm -hmm. just at the same time it's like just because i don't know about it doesn't like make me like less valid to write about it so i don't really care to fill in the gaps unless i really really want to word so you've been doing the newsletter for over a year now how do you feel like your style has changed and evolved over the course of doing it I think I'm more conscious of people reading it. Like I'm always was, but the more I like, uh, uh, you have Substack, so you kind of know, like it kind of notifies you when you have new subscribers. It's like really easy to see the stats. It kind of graph it for you. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's like a lot of tools you can look at to have at least an awareness that you have a reader at the very least. So I'm, I think I'm more conscious about like how it will read to people more than at any time in my life. Like, am I like providing enough information? Is it easy to understand? Is it something cool that they would like? Like the sh- like my blind spots, you know. Like I the survey, I kind of like, hey, like what do you want more of? And it's the blind spot stuff, the experimental stuff, electronic music. So like, I'm more conscious of trying to find it. I'm trying to see if like like if it's worth showing. Just like, am I like showing this just because of the survey, or do I actually like like it? But I also want to like give people what they want too. So I'm more conscious of people reading it and actually like using it for something. Mm-hmm. I really liked that series that you did recently kind of spotlighting a particular producer and just like covering like the arc of their career. Is that something that you plan on doing more of going forward? Yeah, I definitely want to. Like I've, a, I've already have one in mind to do, just a matter of time, but like that was a test more so of like, you know, Subsec's getting like a like a bad rap of like, oh, I mean, you're, like all, all these newsletters in my inboxes that like I'm not reading have like anxiety of not reading what I subscribed for. So I'm very like conscious of like over flooding people's inboxes because like this, after the survey I read that people actually check to read my stuff through the, my inbox, at least like a good 70% of people who answered it. So it's like not to think about like, am I crowding people's inboxes? And like if I'm crowding people's inboxes, I have to make it like really worthwhile reading. So I definitely want to do stuff like that. Um, like pretty much like, you know, special issues where like dedicated, like on a specific topic that's outside of the main newsletter or something. I definitely want to do that. Um, it's just more fun for both like me and for people reading. So what else do you want to like, where else do you want to take the newsletter going forward? Do you have any other kinds of special features that you've been toying around with or particular lenses that you want to look through like where do you see this side of japan going for the rest of the year and going forward from there i think my main thing uh at least for this year is involving more people like just Mm. i mean i don't know too many um people who like 
who claim like you know who is like actually direct being like hey i'm a critic and i'm writing i don't know a lot of those people but i like follow a bunch of you know fans of the music who actually i like their thoughts a lot and i like to see their perspective so like having them involved to write stuff i already have like like the producer one with chatting i like hit up someone on twitter who's a huge shadowing fan and then like they never wrote anything in their life before like about music and then like i had them like just try it out and then i like i like having that with people and just like giving them a space to do it and pretty much having like more voices than just me to talk about japanese music so if people are following me then they could follow them and have like no more like you can meet more people know who's talking about it and everything else so just like uh like inviting more people to uh, in sort of features and stuff like that. What appeals to you about bringing more people into the process? Uh, so it's not just me talking really like a different perspective, like making it more fun for people to read or just like, it could be excuse for me to get to know more people. Cause um, you know, before I invite them, I just see what, what they like talking about. And then, uh, like I did another feature that's not on the newsletter for like different idol groups. And then I talk with them to sort of introduce it to other people who actually know them more about me. So it's like, there's a knowledge that I don't know, but other people know. So let me like, let's, let's just have someone take the floor and like get more knowledge of me about something I like to read about. Word. Well, uh, that's pretty much all I had to ask. I thought this went great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the newsletter. I can't wait to see where it goes. It's always been, it's been a nice way of like popping my own bubble and hearing about a lot of different music that I don't think would have come up on my radar otherwise. So thank you for doing the work that you do. Yeah, thanks for reading. And really, thanks for having me here. I really, I really like the conversation. Absolutely. Talk to you later. Talk to you right later. Bye. Thank you again for listening, and thank you, Rio, for joining me. You can read Rio's work at thissidejapan.substack.com. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a good rating and review, or tell a friend that you think would enjoy it as well. If you'd like to get in touch with me, please email me at lamniformsband at gmail.com. Until next time.